Each one of us is a perfect crystalline snowflake. There's no one just like the other. Stories, however, remind us that we're all just made of snow. I'm Don Hall, and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. And welcome to the podcast. Last week, I recorded from New York City. I was there for four days for Audible. When I got home, I had about six or seven hours to crash out. And then Dana and I hopped in the Prius and drove to Kansas. We spent the weekend with my mom and my dad and my sister and her kids. And it was really a blast. Like mom mom loves to have uh, each one of the kids, everybody, have some time with Dana and I. Early when we got there, mom was off picking up my nephew, Sean, in Lawrence. So we had a couple of hours with my dad. And I put the, well, basically, I put the microphone in the thing and just let my dad just sit and talk for like 90 minutes. Uh, At one point, I just kind of checked out and Dana was in talking to my dad. And I got a lot of really excellent stuff from him. He really is one of the most engaging storytellers I've ever met. One of the things that I noticed in listening to my father's stories, I've spent probably the last six or seven, eight years maybe, focused on that moth style personal story, telling stories about yourself, things that you did, things that happened to you or me in that case, very personal stuff. And I, I, I don't have a problem with that. I think they're, they're good things. But one of the things I noticed about my father is he doesn't tell stories so much about himself as he tells stories about other people that happen to be with, he's, he's sort of the observer in that situation. And I thought that was really interesting. And I've decided that one of the things that I'm going to try to do is branch out. I, I've kind of gotten locked into telling stories about my own personal experience. And I don't really have a problem with that. I think that's a good thing. I do recognize, however, that that can start to become really narcissistic. Uh, I had I wrote a I wrote a post not too long ago for literateape.com. If you don't read, you should. Uh, about hosting the what was it the Cupsy 2017 Poetry Slam semifinals or quarterfinals or whatever it was, and I made the comment that I felt like a lot of the poetry is so navel gazy, is so inwardly looking that it's almost therapy. And one of the students, having read my article, came back and said, "Well, for those of us that can't afford therapy, it is kind of therapy." And I think that might be a little bit of a problem. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but I think it might be problematic if art becomes exclusively an opportunity to simply air your grievances or air your pain or air. I think that's absolutely, there's a place for it, but I remember a certain point back in the 90s where nothing was more insufferable than 
you know, breakup stories and people, you know, poets and stand-ups and storytellers getting up and just bemoaning their fate and how hard it is to have been broken up, to have loved and then lost. And it just got to a point where it was like, I, I'm going to claw my fucking eyes out if I have to listen to another one of these things. And then, of course, years later, I get involved in The Moth, and so I listen to hundreds and hundreds of stories about personal pain, a lot of funny ones, too. And I, again, I, I don't want to give the impression that I think that's a bad thing. But one of the things I'm going to try to do in practice is write more stories about the people I'm around. And as my wife likes to say, if that's going to work, you need to go out and actively be more curious about the people around you. Hopefully, this podcast will be well, a vehicle for that kind of thing. All right, let's get to the stories. The first story was recorded this past weekend. My dad was sitting in his chair and was just talking, and we were talking about a whole bunch of stuff. And this story, uh, I guess we'll call it, I don't want to call, I don't want to give you the title. I don't want to give anything away. Just know that my dad used to fly planes and used to work at an airport when he was a much younger man and enjoy the story. Well, when I was working in the airplane business out there at Garden City, we had a a 24-hour fuel service. If you'd radio in uh, and give us an hour's notice when you were going to be there after hours, we'd have somebody at the gas pump to uh, fuel the airplane. And and we had three of us. We rotated uh, a week at a time. And uh, the flight service area, people would, you know, as they left Kansas City or wherever they were leaving from, and they knew they was going to need fuel in the middle of the night, they'd radio ahead to the flight service there at Garden City, estimated time of arrival, 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning. And then the flight service uh, office had a list of who was on rotation. Well... You probably, in that three years I was out there, I probably only had to get up maybe three times in the middle of the night to go out and fuel an airplane in the middle of the night, you know. So it didn't happen that often. But one night, the phone rings at one o'clock in the morning, and uh, there's a flight service, you know, we got an inbound, gonna be here at 2 a.m., and he's gonna need a load of fuel. And I said, well, what kind of airplane is it? Well, it's a says the 205, you know, at most, that's going to take 40 gallons, you know. Yeah, still 40 gallons, and we advertised 24-hour service, and it was my turn. So anyway, they called, so it's a time you get up, get dressed, and get out there, about 30 minutes before you can get to the airport. So I get there before the airplane lands, and uh, I got the lights all on, I got the lights on at the pump, and the and the guys at the flight service, they got the lights on the runway and this and the other. So, you know, we're all ready for this guy to land. It was a hot August night. Gee whiz, it was hot. And this airplane comes in. It's a Cessna 205, which is a high-wing airplane. That is a lot... <coughs> it was Cessna's first entry into the single-engine cargo-type um, airplane. And it normally had six seats in it plus room for a bunch of baggage or whatever you wanted to haul. 
Anyway, this airplane comes in and he comes in and he lands on one wheel and lands on another wheel, lands on another wheel, and boom, and finally, oh, uh, this guy's drunk, you know, is what I'm thinking. Or he's a very inexperienced pilot, or he's delusional, there's something wrong. And he finally comes off the runway and he taxis around. We got a big sign there that's lit up like Fourth of July. I mean, you can't miss it half a mile away. He finally comes up, pulls up to the pump. He cuts the engine. The guy gets out, he's got light khaki bridges on and a white shirt. And he's got coffee from his shoulder to his knees. Spilled on him. This out the other. He says, which way is the flight service? And I said, well, just that building over there at the end, the door's unlocked, you can go in the back door. He said, well, i got to file a flight plan uh, down to Alamogordo. And I said, okay, which is in New Mexico, and uh, right next to the White Sands Proving Ground and Holloman Air Force Base. And I don't think anything about it. He says, they got any coffee in there? And I said, well, yeah. He usually got a pot on, and I thought to myself, God, you're wearing enough coffee, you know, the way it is. And so I get, I don't know, you got these ladders across the ladder, high wing, and I'm fuel one side, and I drag it around the other side, and I fuel the other side, and put the ladders up, and I'm checking the oil, and washing the windshield, and the door opens. The side door on this Cessna 205 opens, and this guy gets up. And he looks a little rummy-fied, and through the spotlights above, I can see in there, and there's just a pilot's seat, is all I see. This guy gets on, he says, where's, you got coffee in there? I said, no, there's coffee down at the flight service where the pilot went. He said, I'm not going down there. He said, you're going into town? And I said, yeah, I'm going to go back to town. So this guy pays up and I get him out of here. And he said, well, can I ride into town with you? I said, yeah, I said, my old truck's sitting out there. He can go get my truck. So he went out and he got my truck. This guy comes over from a flight service. And I said, you spill your coffee? Oh, son of a bitch, he said. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I said, where are you headed? He said, well, he said, Alamogordo. And I said, well, what's the deal? Because he was still quite visibly shaken. He said, where's that son of a bitch that was in that airplane? And I said, well, he's sitting in my truck right now. I said, what happened? And he said, well, he said he was hanging around the airport at Omaha. And he said, I flew up from Alamogordo this afternoon to Omaha to pick up a cadaver. I said, for sure? He said, yeah, he's laying in there strapped down in a body bag. And he said, Indian was decapitated in the train yard in Omaha. And the Mescalero Indian Reservation is pretty close to Alamogordo. And he said, that's where I gotta have him in the morning. And they wanted him back in the morning, uninvolved. And he said, so, you know, the guy's only been dead about 12 hours. And he says, I gotta get down there before first life because the family's there and they want to take him and bury him up on the reservation. Oh. He says, are you sure that son of a bitch is in your truck? And I said, yeah, he's in my truck. I can see him sitting there in my truck. He says, God damn. He says, this is, he says, that's the scariest thing I've ever seen. I said, well, he didn't look that bright to me. I said, he looked a little disheveled, just that the other. And he said, well, 
He says, do you fly at night? And I said, yeah, I fly at night. He said, pretty lonely up there in the dark, isn't it? And I said, it's real quiet. Yeah, because, you know, you're watching the moon and the stars and scanning the horizon for other airplanes and listening to the navigation radio a little bit. And he says, what if you was just flying along daydreaming? And he says, next thing you know, a hand comes up on your shoulder and says, you got an extra cup? <laughs> <laughs> and the deal was that he approached him after he loaded that body in the airplane and strapped it down. He said, well, could I catch a ride with you? He said, no. And in those days, used to be a lot of guys hanging around airports, hitchhiking on the airplanes, single-engine pilots. And a lot of guys would take them wherever they, you know, for company, especially at night, for company. And he said, no, I said, I don't have an extra seat. And he said, well, it's a six-seater airplane. He said, well, all the seats are out. And he says, I'm hauling the cadaver. And he says, so I got an empty airplane except for that cadaver. And he went in and filed his flight plan at the FAA. Guy jumped in, strapped himself down next to the cadaver in the dark. And when he took the lid off that thermos bottle, he said, boy, that smelled good, you know. <laughs> got an extra cup. Boom. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I get out there in the truck and I said, so uh, you're going to Almaguar? He said, no, he said, I'm really going to Phoenix. He said, but that was pretty close, Almagordo. He said, that's closer than anywhere I could get out of Omaha. I said, well, there ain't nobody going that way tonight or in the morning. I said, I'd take you to a motel there in Garden City. And, oh, he said, I'll, he said, just leave me on Highway 50 there. And he said, I'll find a I'll hitch a ride somewhere on Highway 50. And last I saw him, but that guy would just steam with coffee, one end from the other. I think I'd have done something. I probably had to get a change of underwear, I think, you know. <laughs> I love listening about it. I hope you enjoy listening to Lawrence Volbrecht spin a yarn as much as I do. I really enjoy it. I didn't really have a story that. I tell that was uh, reflective of that sort of tale that he told, but it occurred to me one that I hadn't that I really like that I tell is entitled Government Cheesh. I performed this a number of times and it revisits as a story stuff that if you listen to the broad or the podcast or you know me personally that you already know about me, that I played on the street when I first got to Chicago, that I played my horn, all that kind of stuff. If you listen to the big fish story and Von Freeman from last week, then you know, okay, yeah, I played this is what I did. So maybe I'm just kind of mining some of the stories that I've told uh, over and over for the podcast until I start getting to some fresh stuff. So with that in mind, here is Government Cheesh. When I first moved to Chicago, I lived in my truck for four months and made money to eat by playing my trumpet on the street. I graduated college, moved back home with my mother and discovered the dark and pathetic humiliation of being a college graduate living with his mother. So I loaded up my blue and silver 1984 Bronco II with most of my belongings and headed north of Kansas. The son of my mother's friend let me crash on his floor for a week when I arrived, but the idea of a homeless guy living with he and his girlfriend for any extended period of time was out of the question, so I crawled back into the Bronco and lived there 
for four months. I washed up in the bathrooms of white hen pantries and 7-Elevens. When I had gas, I'd drive around the city discovering my new digs. While I waited for the bureaucracy of the Chicago public school system to process my teaching certification, I was a homeless nomad using the only skill I had to gather enough cash to eat. I played my horn. That was the closest I've ever been to actual poverty, scrambling by day to make enough cash to buy a meal and some gas for my home and parking in non-residential zones everywhere and anywhere so I could sleep in the back of the truck. I didn't have a busker's license. That's the city's way of controlling the flow of desperate musicians looking for a few bucks to eat, of course. So I was occasionally busted by the authorities. Once, a policeman took all the money out of my trumpet case and pocketed it. When I complained, he threatened to haul me in, so I just went someplace else, made a sign that said, the police took all my money today and played the blues. I cleaned up that afternoon. A routine was essential. I figured out that the best times of day to play were in the mornings near various L-stops, midday in the loop, afternoons were most profitable near the Lincoln Park Zoo. The high time for busking was the end of the day, after everyone was headed home from work. Inside actual L-stops, like on Grand or Chicago, were on the Red Line, were prime real estate, and other players had pretty much staked them out so you didn't go there. But somewhere near Randolph and Wabash was always a pretty solid spot. I made more money when I didn't wear a hat. I made more money when I wore a dress shirt. The more clean cut I presented myself as, the less like a homeless person I was. And the change became bills simply because of how I was dressed. As I would calculate my meager earnings, I would realize I was bringing in around $8 a day tax-free. There's your libertarian fantasy. It was enough most days to get at least one solid meal a day and some basics. Toothpaste, deodorant, razors, gas, you know, survival kit of urban life. The experience, while brief, stuck with me. I felt the slight helplessness of being untethered from the rest of society, of being looked at as somehow not a part of the rest of us, of knowing that there were, if I were injured in some way, I was pretty much fucked. Sure, my mom cared that I existed, but not one single person in the entire sprawling metropolis gave two shits whether I lived or died. I was far more afraid of the police than the other homeless or various criminals I encountered. The uneasy sleep of someone almost completely exposed all the time. The loneliness. The near despair. Three years, a job and an apartment later, when my fledgling theater company decided to do an evening of odd experimental theater, I, I brought it all to bear. We were doing the show in Push Studios. It was a dance studio located where Straw Dog Theater was for a very long time, on Broadway, across the street from the Hotel Chateau. The piece, called Frogs, was a solo jazz performance written while I took acid and listened to a CD of tree frog sounds on repeat. Before the show, I would dress in full indigent gear, dirty chinos, a black t-shirt with a button-down shirt missing a few buttons and a tear up the side, torn gym shoes and an old duster coat, a ball cap that was grease-stained. I would stand about a half a block from the theater entrance, about a half an hour before the show started, and play. Straight No Chaser, Perfidio, The Blues Walk. As I'd play, people would walk by and decide to either just not look at me as they rushed by, 
walk by, but sort of sneer a little bit and discuss, maybe mutter something nasty under their breath or stop and throw some change in my case. Given that the location I chose was across the street from a hotel filled with people, society's pretty much given up on being gripped for change was pretty common in the area. Most passers-by had created that bubble of blindness that occurs to those of us who have when faced with so many who have not, as if by you know looking up and away or down at the sidewalk, those who are at the end of their rope cannot be seen, cannot infect us with whatever virus they have. It's a bubble that, while completely understandable, is no less ugly for the justification. The audience would pass me by and enter the theater space. The house music played, and about five minutes after the start time, I'd pack my trumpet up and walk up into the venue as if I were you know, looking for a bathroom or a place to sleep. I'd lumber into the cabaret space among the audience. I'd ask a few for a handout, and the entire room would get very tense. Most shows, no one said anything and just hoped that someone from the theater would bounce me. So I ignored the stares, the uncomfortable coughs, the slightly abrupt whispers. And once I had effectively heightened the discomfort in the room to an unbearable pitch, the technician would change the house music to the Tree Frog CD, and I would actively hear it, and then open my trumpet case and play the piece I had written while tripping. I'd finish, pack up my horn, and walk away and go change for the rest of the show. We did the show for 12 weeks, 24 shows. Every Friday and Saturday night, I'd play the part, play the trumpet on the street. 24 times, people would either pass by in disdain or throw a couple bucks in there. A young white couple on a date, happily walking hand in hand, suddenly shifting gears, getting quiet and somber as they both looked in other directions than right at me as they quickened by. A group of guys who just shoved past, almost knocking me down in the process, as if to dare me to speak up. The kid, maybe six or seven, stopping with his parents to listen, and his father giving him a dollar to put in my case. It was exactly like when I first moved to the city. I felt apart from the rest of the tribe, floating among people but not of them. This time, though, it was as an artist, observing behavior and assessing the cost of each interaction with an almost anthropological interest. On night 23, things were proceeding as before, and then a shambling black man with a dirty paper bag dodged traffic to get to me. He was coming from the chateau. He wore a faded Taste of Chicago t-shirt and a do-rag. He couldn't have been older than 40, but they were a very hard 40 years. Excuse me. He was talking through his clenched jaws and a bit of spittle flew out of his mouth from the force of his effort to speak. I kept playing. I was, you know, in character. But I acknowledged him with a look into his eyes. Excuse me. I live up there. And he pointed to a fourth or fifth floor window. And I had my jaw broken because of a bad night. My jaw is wired shut. See? I nodded and continued to softly play a riff on Miles Davis' All Blues. The Hotel Chateau is what used to be called a flop house. It had week-long room rates, and it also had hourly room rates. Prostitutes, alcoholics, drug addicts, and the last bit of the world's refuse ended up there. It was four steps and a hop from sleeping under Lower Wacker Drive. It was the most sorrowful-filled building I had ever seen. The name Hotel Chateau was like a mean-spirited joke on all who resided within. See? I can't eat solid foods. 
I've been depressed because of it every weekend, but you come here and play. I listen every week. It's a good thing. Catch my jaws wired shut. I don't have no money, but I have this cheese. And he handed me the bag. I stopped playing. I took the bag and looked inside, and there it was, a brick of government-issue yellow cheese, still shrink-wrapped. I didn't know what to say, but I started to politely refuse. No, you take it. I got nothing else, and you give me a gift with your music, so I want you to have this. I can't eat it anyway. My jaw's broke. Thank you, I said. What what, What do you want to hear? He looked surprised. Uh, something Christmas? It was May. Christmas was forever over or forever forthcoming. I thought for a second and pulled my horn to my lips. I played a sort of blues-flecked version of White Christmas, and he smiled through his clamped mouth and clapped his hands like a child. I finished the song with a flourish, and he grinned, a strained and painful smile. I bowed slightly. He applauded. Then he turned and shuffled back across the street, across this boulevard of broken dreams, and back into the hotel chateau. I closed my case and went upstairs into the theater, but I didn't play the piece I'd written while high as a kite in the comfort of my one-bedroom apartment in Edgewater. I played something different. I played something improvised. It was based on the chords of White Christmas, and like all truly improvised music, the song was played once and never again. No one, not even the cast members, noticed that it was different. But it made me sad, angry, and hopeless. The following night, the last night of our performance on Broadway, was the last time I ever played my trumpet on the street. And that is the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the stories. I hope you enjoyed the journeys. Um, Hope that you will enjoy sharing the podcast with other people if you think it's cool. Go online, go to iTunes, throw me some stars, recommend it if you like it. If you don't, say it sucks. Whatever you got to do. Let people know that uh, the podcast exists. I just want to leave you with a quote that I shared online not too long ago that I really think sums up my view of what storytelling provides us. This is Neil Gaiman from the foreword of the newest Moth book. The gulf that exists between us as people is that when we look at each other, we might see faces, skin color, gender, race, or attitudes, but we don't see, we can't see the stories. And once we hear each other's stories, we realize that the things we see as dividing us are all too often illusions, falsehoods, that the walls between us are in truth no thicker than scenery. Neil Gaiman, a brilliant storyteller, and I think uh, that's a wise perspective. With that in mind, go out, tell some stories, listen to some stories. Let your narrative uh, serve you as best it possibly can. Uh, Until next week, rock on.